This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The bookcase is available for your books. We are open for business. I'm Charlie Gibson. I'm not sure what we're offering to your books. Like we're open to your books. Like we're open. We're open-minded to your books. Come, give us your books. Put them in the bookcase. Store them with us. <laughs> but we are a repository of information and pithy conversation. Hello. Today we're going to be talking to John Clinch who is known as a wildly successful historical fiction author. And his new one, The General and Julia, is not to be missed. It's not that long a read, and it's beautifully written. It's a very interesting book about Ulysses Grant, Hiram Ulysses Grant. That's his actual name. Hiram. Hiram Ulysses Grant. Hiram. No, nobody, most people don't know him as Hiram. People refer to him as Ulysses S. Grant. Grant always used to say, I don't know what the S stands for. Uh, Make it Simpson. But uh, where the S came from, I don't know. His actual name is Hiram Ulysses Grant, obviously the 18th president of the United States, and not very well known in history. I think if you ask most people, oh yeah, he's the drunk president who came in after the Civil War, won the Civil War for the Union, but not well known. People know him, I think, as a strategist. I think they knew him as Lincoln's right hand in the war, the cigar smoking larger than life general who sat on horseback. And he's largely forgotten as the president who focused a good deal of his presidency on breaking the KKK which I think is worthy of remembrance. You know, many people know him as a great president. And this book focuses on whether or not he regrets, in a sense, letting the South walk away. What did letting the South walk away with their dignity and basically saying, go forth and sin no more? What did that do for the future of America? And what did that do for the future of race relations? In some ways, we may still be paying for it. Well, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, in a speech in 1900, said we have three great Americans, the mightiest of America's mighty leaders, said Teddy Roosevelt, who were the three, Washington, Lincoln, and Ulysses Grant. Why, said Roosevelt? Well, he was unsparing in battle, but he was merciful in victory. And he succeeded as Lincoln's general of the Union armies after so many generals had failed. And in the last year of the war, he wore down Robert E. Lee. The surrender came at Appomattox, as we all know. And Theodore Roosevelt was not alone in his opinion. Maybe one of the two great generals that we had as president, Eisenhower, said Grant was vastly underrated. And I'm quoting Ike now. I know people think this and that about his drinking habits, which have been exaggerated way out of line. He was a great soldier, never given his due. And Kate's right. He won the Civil War for the Union armies and then spent a good deal of his presidency trying to make sure that we had achieved the ends of the Civil War, holding the Union together and liberating the slaves. This book, I should say, is about the latter years of Grant's life. 
he was a man of incredible contradictions, as John Clinch writes about. And this is about the end of his life, when he had been swindled out of all of his money yes. by a guy with what we would call a Ponzi scheme today. It's also a love story about his relationship with Julia, thus the name, the general and Julia. And he, having no money, he was dying of cancer, but he had to get his memoirs written because he thought maybe people would read them and he could then therefore provide for Julia and the family after his death. It's really a very sweet story in many regards. In some ways, I think in some ways, it's the sad story that follows so many folks in history, which is that he was a brilliant leader, a brilliant strategist. So many admired him and he had sort of, quote unquote, other people to worry about the money stuff. He didn't worry about the money stuff. And while he wasn't worrying about the money stuff, all of his money went away and he realized he was leaving nothing for his children and his wife. So the memoir that he is writing is a race against time. And in some ways, that is the backdrop of the book. Can he finish his memoir before he dies? It provides a very dramatic real life battle for Grant to fight while he's finishing this book. And I think historians would agree that his memoirs are as great as any presidential memoirs ever written. It was an immensely popular memoir when it was published. And who got it published? Julia convinced him to write it, and Mark Twain. That element of it is amazing. Twain believed in it, convinced Grant that he should get more money for it than he had been planning. Indeed, he got the equivalent of today would be $14 million for Julia and the family, so they were comfortable, and he wrote the last words of that memoir three days before he died. He stayed alive in order to get it done. Yeah. And this is an important moment for whoever's out there who's going to pay me 14 million for my memoirs someday. Just take note, 14 million is the asking price. <laughs> You'll find them on eBay uh, <laughs> <laughs> under the unpublished uh, memoirs section. I think it's worth saying too, this latest book is just amazing and worth checking out. But John has also written a book called Marley, which is the fictionalized story of Jacob Marley, the fictionalized partner of Ebenezer Scrooge in Charles Dickens, which is absolutely worth checking out. And Finn, which is the fictionalized story of Huckleberry Finn's father and how he interweaves into Finn's tale, both of which are very, very well written. I'm a big fan of John's writing, and I'm, I'm now going to be picking up whatever he releases in the future. I'm loving it. But this book, just out, The General and Julia, a story of U.S. Grant's or Hiram Ulysses Grant's <laughs> final days, our conversation with John Clinch. John Clinch, it is a pleasure, real pleasure to have you in the bookcase. And I want to start talking a little bit about Ulysses S. Grant. There's a couple of very prominent Grant biographies that have been written in recent years. What new did you want to say about Ulysses S. Grant? What I wanted to add, obviously, the most important thing that I've ever heard on the subject of history versus fiction comes from, I think, E.L. Doctorow. And the line was on something on the order of the historian can tell you what happens and the novelist can tell you how it felt. Mm -hmm. I find, and I found again and again, that at least in fiction, probably in life, although it's a hell of a lot more painful in life, the best way to find out about a person's personality and character is by looking at them at their lowest point. And we certainly see Grant in the histories 
at many of his highest points. I mean, he accomplished so many things. He was visible to so many people. He was so beloved. But people don't know about that tragic end. And that tragic end seemed to me like the place where you could open up his mind a little bit and see what kind of a character he had that let him go through the traumas and the woes that he did with such strength and grace. The circumstances at the end of his life were so tragic. It was so difficult for him to manage to fight off cancer, to fight off poverty, to fight off weariness, to fight off dying, to fight off the loss of everything that had made him such an elevated and important character in America. And give it all up, let it all go, and work to save his family's financial future which, uh, by God, it's a tragedy in the sense that he had to do it. It's not a tragedy in the sense that he was able to do it. So you're starting sort of mid-period to late period in Grant's life. So it seems to me you may have struggled with how to open. So, But you open with the death of a canary and the building <laughs> yes. of a tiny canary coffin. Yes. And I'm wondering at what point that became the opening of the story and why you decided to open the story that way. You are 100% correct that struggling with where to open a novel is always the big question. And the most significant bit would, of course, in terms of starting the thing, would have been uh, his meeting with or an early meeting with Julia. So she's living on her parents' farm and she is visited from time to time by her brother's roommate at West Point, who was a young man named Ulysses Grant. And he's clearly very interested in her. He comes and he visits with her father, as one might do if one were interested in her. And one day he arrives to see that her bird has died, flown the coop, as, <laughs> as he puts it, <laughs> until he finds out he's wrong and, she's, and he's actually dead. In reality, I'm not, I'll, we'll get to reality later. The fiction is more important. In fiction, he encounters the dead bird. He asks about the, the body and he knows how broken up she is. And he takes it upon himself to go out into the tool shed and build a little tiny coffin. And he carries out a funeral for the little bird. And they bury it underneath a rose bush right outside the house. It seemed to me like the greatest opportunity to show a side of Ulysses Grant that we just don't think about. I mean, here was a young man courting the woman who would become his beloved. And he did this not for the bird, but for her, obviously. And he, in fact, tells her so, that this is about you. And the two of them have that kind of an intimate moment. Now, the reality, the reality is that the story took place, except that Grant brought with him, I forget whether it was six or eight soldiers from the fort where he was stationed, and they uh, acted as pallbearers for the little <laughs> tiny coffin. Was there a gun salute? Was there, did I somebody fold the flag and hand it to Julia? Yes, the bird got shot again. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask a question based on that, which is how much, like when you're writing about the difficulty of writing this book, I'm thinking to myself, how much of this is John getting out his frustration about the difficulty of writing a book? <laughs> Boy, oh boy, that's a good point. And there were moments. I wrote this book during COVID, 
And there were moments when at a certain point I got COVID and I Mm. actually found myself thinking, I've got to finish this book before I die of COVID. But yeah, in a sense, it is the plea of every writer that, of course, the thing you're working on will leave the most important evidence of what's in your heart out there on the library shelf and that will do good things for your family. Those are all real things for everybody. You're right. I'm interested, too, as you go back and you look at one of the things Grant realizes as he's writing his memoirs is that in letting the South off the hook, in letting them leave the battlefield as gentlemen, he has created hell on earth for blacks in the U.S., which may be the reason that he focused so much on the Klan during his presidency. Did you get a sense as you were doing the research that he had this regret, this sadness, this guilt, this anger at not having fixed the racial, I mean, obviously it was going to be century. I mean, we're still dealing with racial reckoning, but did he feel, did he have that guilt of letting the South walk off the battlefield as gentlemen? I'm glad you asked that because the other day I saw an advertisement somewhere, probably on Facebook where we all get our news, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but that's probably where it was for a new book. And I don't remember, this is not a plug because I don't remember the title and I don't (laughs) remember the author. I do remember being delighted to see that it was coming out from my publisher, which was pretty cool. But I leave the rest up to people who might be listening to this to try to figure out what the book was. Nonetheless, it's a book whose main thrust, at least according to the malarkey that the publishers put out about things like books, seems to have to do with revelations that Grant went through this process of, uh, well, two processes. One, of altering his relationship and his understanding with Black people as the war went on and as it, after it had concluded. And the other thing, that he struggled as time went by with exactly the point you make. Did he make a mistake by being too lenient, by saying essentially to the Confederate army, and to the Confederates, you know, go and sin no more. Just you're forgiven. Go home. We're all family members. So apparently there's some new understanding and thought from historians on that subject. The memoirs that he wrote in that last period of his life, when he knew he had to get a book out that could take care of Julia because he was broke at that point. And the fascinating part to me is not only did Julia convince him to do it, But I didn't know about his relationship with Mark Twain, who convinced him to write this book. But the amazing thing about Grant, this man who had such contradictions in his life, turned out to be a terrific writer. I've read parts of the memoir, and it is very readable. What he wrote is, I think, generally conceded to be maybe one of the best, if not the best, presidential memoir ever written. The guy turned out to be really good. (laughs) <laughs> at what he was doing, even though he was writing under deadline, deadline being dead, dead, deadline. Yeah. Death, yeah. <laughs> oh God, deadline. That's terrible. <laughs> oh, this is oh, awful. Oh, oh. anyway. <laughs> at any rate. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It is a wonderful book. It's a book that has him in it. Mark Twain was so happy with the manuscript. If you can be happy with a manuscript from a dying friend, but he was so delighted with the quality of the work. And he, he, you know, he knew it was going to be good. He had a lot of faith in Grant. Of course, as we said, Grant could do anything, it seemed. But Twain was so thrilled. I mean, he didn't, he claims not to have changed a word. 
you know, and it began with these two or three or four eventually articles that he wrote for uh, a magazine. And he was paid what he thought was fairly handsomely for them. And he and there was really very little, 500 bucks a pop. And it didn't occur to him the way it occurred to everybody else, especially to Mark Twain, that what he was doing was a landmark that everyone would be interested in. He, When Mark Twain would suggest that a book with your name attached is going to be a bestseller, it's going to sell X number of copies and you're going to make X number of dollars if you accept X terms or Y number of dollars if you accept Y terms. and Twain had experience with this. So it made perfect sense for Twain to go to bat for him. Twain understood that his friend was dying and that his friend wanted to provide for his family and that his friend had been done wrong and that his friend had an important story to tell. And actually, the truth is that Twain had started a little publishing company of his own. Twain was a failure at all kinds of things in his life, too, especially anything involving money. But uh, he had started a little publishing company. He had installed his nephew, I think, to run it. And they were about to publish a book called Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And this was to be, if Grant went with him, the next book, The Memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. I want to come back to something I alluded to earlier. I think Grant is a fascinating character. There are so many contradictions in him. Great general, very naive about money undersells himself in so many different respects. And there are a couple of really interesting biographies, Chernos being one, Whites being the other, of Grant in recent years. But in the public mind, I think Grant is undervalued because everybody thinks, oh, Grant, the drunk president, right? the alcoholic president. He wasn't. He wasn't a drinker. And while people seem to have that in their mind, the other stuff, the extraordinary life that he led, sort of gets sublimated and people don't pay attention to it. Why has that misconception about Grant? He was almost, he wasn't a teetotaler, but he didn't drink much. Why has that overwhelmed everything else in people's minds? Boy, that's a fair thing to ask. I wish that it hadn't. Even I, when I started thinking, when I, you know, before I started working on this project, thought about General Grant, that was a thing that was in my mind because it's the thing you hear. I think it's kind of an easy thing to say. I think it's kind of an easy thing to repeat. And it's always tempting to repeat the worst thing you know about a person and to diminish him and to make yourself feel better by reporting the downside and exaggerating the downside, exaggerating the faults and failings. And I think probably began, I think there's some general understanding of that with his detractors during and after the war, people who wanted to make him smaller. How did you decide on the beats of Grant's life that you wanted to include and examine for the book? They all really had to do with character. They had to do with some action on his part that really told his story and looked inside his mind. Mm. The first one being obviously his uh, his tenderness with Julia. The second one was chapters called The Cigar. The story is about how he began smoking cigars. And he began smoking cigars because he had found one sort of thrust into his mouth on the battlefield. And the newspapermen saw it. And he became the cigar-smoking general. And within days, cigars began to arrive by the wagon load 
wherever he was. And well, naivete, once again, we didn't know what these things did to us. He ultimately was smoking 25 cigars a day. So we wanted, uh, in chapter two there, I wanted to set the early stage for two things. One, ultimately the addiction to cigars, to smoking, which would ultimately kill him. And two, his adulation by the public. And three, his sort of innocence mm-hmm. about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, people are giving me cigars. Exactly. I probably... I should begin smoking. I was going to say he even started the smoking habit with a bit of naivete. Like it was like, I better smoke all these cigars. People are so nice (laughs) to give them to me. If I smoke 12 a day, maybe I can get through the gifts that people give me and they'll know how much they meant to me. You're right. And it's a good point about Grant. There's a phrase in the book, the cigar keeps him ordinary. And he did not want to be seen as this Promethean figure. He didn't want to be seen in all the regalia that a general could wear. He was dressed like a common soldier much of the time. Even at Appomattox, he dressed down to take Lee's surrender. You are a writer of historical fiction. And I wonder, does that give you liberties that an historian does not have? That if you reach a point where you think, gee, I don't know exactly what he could have been thinking at this point, you can make it up. That gives you a greater freedom than an historian who has to be a slave to the facts. Absolutely, it does. And in in this particular case, from the very beginning, I knew that his illness and his his medical treatment during the last 40 days of his life were going to give me even more freedom because I could actually, instead of doing what everybody does in an historical novel and put words in the mouth of uh, people that we know didn't really say them, I could actually get inside his brain. I could have him hallucinate and I could have him remember and conflate one memory with another. And the reason for that, of course, being that the drugs that he was given for his cancer and to ease the pain and to keep his heart going were just, you know, he'd wake up in the morning and they would give him a a shot of brandy mixed with cocaine. And the question that would occur to me is, well, what's going through this man's mind as he's, A, trying to dig back into his own past to write his memoir, as he's living through what he knows are his last days with his wife and his children and his grandchildren around. So he's he's conjuring up the past and he's living in the past and he's making the most of the present and he's he's swimming in this mass of memories. And that gave me, I think, at least as far as I was concerned, the license to set him free and to let him, in fact, at the very end, have kind of a vision, an epiphany about his relationship with black people. And to me, it just, it set me free. Well, it's a fascinating story, Grant, in his latter days. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Rapid fire questions for John Clinch. When you finish a book and you write the end, do you have a finishing ritual? What do you do? I start the next one. (laughs) How do you know you're done? At some point, the revising has to stop. How do you know you're done? That's a thing I do know. You know when you're done, when every last word is the wrong one. Very simple. Very simple. And you hate every you hate everyone. Every choice you made is terrible. Then you're done. A writer that does what you do that you highly admire. I admire Charles Frazier. I think line by line, paragraph by paragraph, Frazier is as good as they get in America right now. He also, I mean, while I'm on Frazier. His third book, a book called Nightwoods, which is kind of a literary thriller, I think nobody knows about it. Probably not familiar to you. Whenever people ask me for a book recommendation, I say, oh, Nightwoods by Charles Frazier. And they said, oh, he wrote Cold Mountain. I say, yeah. And they don't know anything else until later, maybe. But Nightwoods is fantastic. Do you finish a book that you're not liking? No, I am too old. How soon do you know you're not liking it? Sometimes in a page. Mm. If they don't grab you at the beginning, they're not going to get you at the end. And if it's not elegant at the beginning, you know, I'm such a, a believer in the power of the opening sentence, both in terms of the language of the book, the control that the author has over the material. You should be able to tell so much from that first sentence. What's the book in the back of your mind that you haven't written yet that you want to? A book about my father and his father. So when my dad was about 50 years old, he discovered that he had an entirely different family that he didn't know about in Clinch Mountain, Tennessee. Clinch Mountain, Tennessee. His father had abandoned them and come north and on the way run into this young woman that he fell in love with or whatever, who turned out to be my grandmother. And they married and they had another family altogether. So I have this picture of my grandfather as a bigamist and a badass and a total phony. And I have this image of my father as a person who modeled his life after the shape that he imagined his father had. And then when his father was revealed to be a different person altogether, what that would feel like. That's the book I'd like to write. Oh, see, now, Dad, you have to go out and get your life and make it more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) How am I ever going to write your biography if you don't go do something like that? 
John Clinch, it is a pleasure to talk to you. The General and Julia is the name of the book. He's a fascinating character. We could go on and on. Thanks very much. Yes, thank you so much. It's been a delight to talk with you. Thanks for having me. It really is an interesting story, The General and Julia. I do recommend it. It's a really interesting piece of history and so surprising that a guy like Ulysses Grant, who had been such a brilliant general and won the war for the Union and preserved the Union and all that the Civil War produced, is swindled out of every dollar he has. He's down to his final $200 when he is swindled by a guy named Frederick Ward, who John Clinch describes as a scheming, cold-blooded little reptile. I love that. (laughs) I also think in today's day and age, it's so foreign to us that a great man wouldn't want to write his own memoirs. It seems like people can't wait to write their own memoirs. They turn 30 and they're like, here is my (laughs) life. So the idea that, you know, Mark Twain had to sit him down and say, no, your life is interesting and people are interested in your perspective in the war is just fascinating to me because, again, We live, I think, in an age where great men and women cannot wait to trumpet their own trumpet sometimes. And say, show me the money. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) For presidential memoirs. I read part of it when I was in college, and it's really a very readable memoir that U.S. Grant or Hiram Ulysses Grant wrote. We don't have a bookstore today, but we do have somebody that Kate knows personally who has a fascinating approach to independent bookstores. You should explain. I'm friends on Facebook with this woman named Andrea Carson, who's been a friend of mine ever since high school. We go way back to the Kent Place days in the 90s, 30 some odd years ago. Anyway, over the summer, she was posting on Facebook that she was taking road trips to independent bookstores, that she was basing her road trips on stops she could make at independent bookstores. And I thought that was so cool. And it seemed so in keeping with our mission and what we do here at The Bookcase that I called her and I said, do you want to talk to us about it? Because I don't know that many people that are doing it. And I think it's really cool. And so she's agreed to talk to us. So here we have our conversation with Andrea Carson, the independent bookseller road tripper. Andrea Carson Tanner, it is so great to have you in the bookcase. I really, this is the strangest booking because really this just came from my seeing your Facebook posts at various independent bookstores. You saying, I'm taking a road trip of independent bookstores and me calling you up and saying, what? So I guess my first question is, well, I'll just put this as a question. Independent bookstore road trip? Question mark? Like, where did that come from? <laughs> well, it all started because I was celebrating a milestone birthday this year. I turned 50 in May. And to celebrate my birthday, I decided to do what I called a bookstore crawl around the Triangle area of North Carolina, where I live, Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. And I just found seven indie bookstores around the Triangle and hopped from bookstore to bookstore over the course of my birthday in May, which was a wonderful trip. And then a friend of mine who is a uh, fellow lover of books, saw all of that and said, you know, I found this uh, Cape bookstore trail on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Wouldn't that be fun someday? And it became this someday, we'll do that. And I said, you know, someday is now. Let's do this. I'm still celebrating my 50th birthday year. So let's go. And so two dear friends and I decided to take the road trip that is the Cape and Islands bookstore trail. Andrea, Andrea, Andrea. Most people, when they go on vacation, go to Paris or go to Las Vegas or go to whatever. You go to independent bookstores. 
Does anybody say that's a little strange? Bookstores are my happy place, Charlie. <laughs> I could spend an hour or more in a bookstore just browsing. I love to spend time in the young adult section and the children's section and nonfiction. So it's just a place I love to be. I'm the same with libraries. And so it was an easy choice to not only spend the weekend with dear friends and to be on Cape Cod, but to throw some bookstores in the mix too. Well, I want to give you a chance to get on the soapbox. What do you think is so important about independent bookstores that you would spend your vacation time on them? Well, it's interesting that you say that because one of the books I picked up at the Brewster Bookshop in Brewster, Massachusetts was a book called How to Protect Bookstores and Why by Danny Kane. And he talks about just how bookstores really contribute to their local economies, not to mention building community, supporting local authors, amplifying and lifting up historically marginalized voices. So when you would show up, would you introduce yourself to the bookstore owner? Like, what were those interactions like? Uh, how did you, uh, I'm, I'm filming Louising across the country, bookstore to bookstore. How did you do that? Yes, we absolutely did. And I will say that the Cape and Islands Bookstore Trail was not invented by us. It existed as its own thing. I think the <laughs> bookstore owners had come together, created a coalition, and developed this map of the bookstores. And you could <laughs> print out the map and go from place to place, tell them that you were there. That's what we did. We're here for the Cape and Islands Bookstore Trail. They would give you a little sticker to put on your map. But one of the best things I loved about this trip was talking to the booksellers. In fact, the first place we went was called Eight Cousins Books in Falmouth, Massachusetts. And as we were walking in, I thought, hmm, Eight Cousins, there's got to be a story there. <laughs> and so when we walked in and said, we're here on the trail and said, tell us about the name. How did you name Eight Cousins? Well, it turns out Eight Cousins is a book by Louisa May Alcott, which I did not know. I didn't know that either. And it's a book that apparently the tone is very much warm and cozy. It's about family and connections and community. And the owner said, when we created this bookstore, we wanted it to feel like that. The feeling we got reading Eight Cousins is exactly what we wanted for our bookstore, which I loved. And then, of course, couple bookstores later, I'm browsing through some used books in the children's section. And what's there? Eight Cousins by Louisa May Alcott. Um, so it, come, it comes full circle. But the names were often really interesting to talk to the mm. booksellers. Mm. There was one called I Cannot Live Without Books, which is a quote by Thomas Jefferson. I found out from the bookseller that he had attended the University of Virginia. Oh, that's great. Very close connection to Thomas Jefferson, of course. So he chose I Cannot Live Without Books for the title of his bookstore, the name, I should say, of his bookstore. And then Where the Sidewalk Ends was one in Chatham. Oh, oh that's um, great. Shel Silverstein, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, Below the Brine is from a poem by Walt Whitman. So very careful choices that were made by these owners. And so it was fun to hear about those stories and just talk more to the booksellers. I love how bookstore owners name their books. You know, there's a romance bookstore in Brooklyn called The Ripped Bodice. Like, I just love the way the book nerds name their bookstores. I would suspect that these bookstore owners were delighted when you had told them what you were doing. Is there one feature of a bookstore when you walk in and you see that, you think, oh, I'm going to like this place? What feature of a bookstore makes Andrea Carson Tanner feel 
at home. I always love to see the staff recommendations because that's not only oftentimes what local authors might be featured, but what the staff is interested in and what things they might like to highlight for their readers. But another fun thing I'll point out at one bookstore, Titcombs in East Sandwich, they had a literary rock garden on the outside where you could walk up and, you know, they had rocks filled in this area and you could write a book of your favorite title and put it in the rock garden. So just to sort of browse through that. So different features and ways that they have just highlighted books and made readers across the spectrum feel welcome. I love this idea and I'm totally thinking about doing it. Now, if I was going to go on a trip like this, I would need a budget. Like I would need to budget myself because, so what did you do? Like, I mean, was, did you limit yourself? Was it one book per store? Like, how did you do that? (laughs) I did try to make a purchase at every store, but I will tell you that there are 24 bookstores on the Cape and Islands bookstore trail. Four of them are on Martha's (laughs) Vineyard and Nantucket. And we had to make the executive decision to bypass those. Unfortunately, the ferry back and forth, we're going to eat up the three and a half days we had. So we missed that. And a pop-up bookstore that didn't happen to be popping that weekend. So, but we went to 19 bookstores uh, across Cape Cod um, (laughs) and wanted to make one purchase. Now between the two friends and I, each of us at one point made different purchases. So I only left with maybe 15 books, which had to be shipped back to me because I did, I wasn't able to put them all in my suitcase flying home, but yeah, you know, one book per place, mostly paperbacks, but the used bookstores, sometimes it's $5.99. Man, I loved your posts this summer. Two different roads trips to independent bookstores. What a cool thing to do. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Under the list of great ideas, Andrea Carson. Danner, (laughs) you had one and I'm delighted that you're doing this. Yeah. And I'll bet every independent bookstore around the country is delighted that you would do this. You take care. Thank you so much. Andrea Carson, an old friend, Thelman Louising her way across independent bookstores in the country stopping by at an independent bookseller near you. Anyway, a great reminder about the folks who make this podcast possible and then a coda from our author, John Clinch. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with Sure Can Productions. Asal Asanapur is our producer. Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America. And Josh Cohan, Nania McLean, Vika Aronson, and Brenda Salinas Baker at ABC Audio. In the introduction to Thomas Pinchon's collection of old short stories, I think the line was, when you look at anything you wrote a long time ago, it's embarrassing, even canceled checks. 